Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs, benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theater masters, founders, and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, an improviser and psychotherapist in Naples, Florida. And today I have really, really awesome guest. I've known this lady since, at least since the pandemic, and she is tireless. She runs a theater, she teaches classes, she supports so many people. And I'm really glad to call her my friend. Welcome, Carla Dingle. Thank you, Margot, and thank you for that lovely uh introduction. Well, it's all true, except the part that wasn't. So uh, <laughs> I was listening to Conan O'Brien's um, podcast recently, and they're always dissing each other on his podcast, but it's so funny. So I didn't mean to diss you, but I got a bit of Conan in me this morning. Diss away, diss away. <laughs> so let's start with your story and your childhood and where you grew up and what your family was like. And let's start there. Well, I am uh, one of four children, all names starting with K. Uh, so it's Karen, Kevin, <laughs> Carla, and Kelly. Uh, and I sort of follow that tradition because my with my dogs, they all have let names that start with the same letter. Um, what I remember of my childhood starts probably around like age five. Um, we lived in a suburb outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, which is just a, you know, an idyllic little southern neighborhood with a community pool and tennis court, the end of the cul-de-sac where we spent every hour of our summer. Uh, my mom, that was her job was to run the swimming pool. Uh, you know, back in the early 70s, there weren't as many working women and we needed the additional income in our house. And so that's what she did. So that's sort of like what I remember is just summers at the pool. And then, you know, it was the time when uh, parents opened the door at 10 a.m. after breakfast and said, come back for lunch. And then after lunch, come back for dinner. And then after dinner, uh, be back when the, the street lights are on. Uh, and I just was outside with the kids um, in my neighborhood, maybe not at five, but like growing up the whole, the whole right, time. Right. Um, so that's sort of what I remember. Uh, but I guess I was always the dramatic child. I don't know what to say. So I got involved in um, a community theater very early on, uh, uh, Dorville Children's Theater, which is in a couple little towns over. And I learned acting and singing and dance. Uh, and we would do shows and performance. And that was my world. Uh, truly yes. was my yes. world. Three, four days a week. Wow. After school plus weekends um, from probably five, six to when I was almost 15. And we moved to uh, Connecticut, a place called Trumbull, Connecticut. Tiny little town. Yes. Where, where yes. fast food restaurants are illegal. 
And they're only known for like the world champion little league team one year. <laughs> um, that's all they're known for. And transitioning as a sophomore in high school who had grown up in theater and, you know, I, I'll say successful because I always played the funny friend um, or the character in the plays. And then when I got up to Connecticut, there just wasn't those sort of opportunities. Oh. And, uh, you know, it's like starting over at the bottom and reinventing yourself, which is always a challenge. Well, especially uh, at 15 years old. Especially at 15. My my wow. parents said that I was the most miserable human being. Uh, but I finally found something called Trumbull Youth Association. And once, a, just in the summertime, they would do a big Broadway theater production. And uh, by the time I got up there, they had already cast everything. Uh, and my mother, being who she is, was like, well, my daughter's so talented. And let her in. And <laughs> me in the chorus for the first year. Huh? And this was like for freshmen, so like ninth graders, all the way up to folks that were in college. So it was a wide mix of ages. Uh, and as the summer has progressed, I, I got back into getting some of the larger roles, but being much younger, uh, I found myself hanging out with the much older crowd and uh, fit in Ooh. again. <laughs> as usual. So the after parties were legendary. I'll say that. And um, I didn't do well in school because of that, because I was so involved in the theater and it being my world. And then every August, my friends would go back to college and I would go back to the school and just not have that community that I had grown up around. And uh, so I didn't do well in school. And then I did make some friends eventually there. And of course, they graduated and they all went off to college, but because my grades were terrible, uh, I didn't go off to college. So I went to work full time and was like, I don't want to do this. So what was your first job, Carla? I worked in the mailroom uh, for a Fortune 500 corporation called Pitney Bowes. Uh -huh. And they're the ones that like stamp yeah. your postage. That was what I did. <laughs> um, but they paid for my education. So I went to school part time for about four years and finished my freshman year and did really well. And then I decided like, I didn't want to do that. And I applied for colleges and at 22, I became a sophomore at the University of Georgia uh, uh, with a Good for you. Yeah. specialty in theater. And I uh, was like, I'm just gonna go do this for a living. And then I got squashed real fast. Uh, oh no, huh? what happened? reality of competitive college theater programs I thought I was good and what I learned really quickly was like that's all right but there were a lot of people that were a lot lot better uh so anyway I ended up about my end of my middle of my junior year switching over from an acting performance sort of track to a writing track so I actually have my degree in script writing Wow. Yeah, so that's my childhood in a very long, long story. Sorry. No, don't. No, there's no stories here. Remember, there's a story. Wall. Oh, sorry, Jay Suko. No. <laughs> <laughs> and he's one of the ways we got connected, Jay Suko. Mm -hmm, yeah. Incredible guy. Um, so, yeah, you went from like kind of being a little, little young star and then having these dreams kind of crushed. And so you got your degree in script writing and 
but the love of theater was in your bones already. It was ossified in your bones, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it it definitely was. I, I I would go and like watch a play or uh see something on TV and like there was this aching like for me to do this. Um but in college like so many folks I met a man and then we ended up getting married shortly after school and then quicker than we had planned about a year later my son came and then you know the priorities shift right uh, and your focus shifts and family became a priority for me and uh, and it just felt like there was nothing tangible from an entertainment perspective that I was ever going to really be able to be a part of I worked retail for many 25 plus years. Uh obviously Oh my god, that that's that's a source of many great scenes, isn't it? Working Oh, it is now. because I didn't work <laughs> at I didn't work at normal retailers. I worked for Build a Bear Workshop for 10 years <gasps> and I worked for the American Girl doll store. So I have a lot of fodder for scene ones for sure. But I couldn't do anything scripted with um a retail schedule. I mean, I can't rehearse several nights a week I can't perform for four to five weekends so it just felt like theater was a, a memory of the past and something that I would always love oh, but then things shifted now I want to go back to a word you said community because in the improv world in the acting world but in the improv world that we're in the sense of community is so important isn't it it's just and you foster community you foster all of these great talents and newbies and everyone that wants to do improv and acting at your theater. It's just marvelous. So what shifted for you? What happened? Was there a volcano that erupted inside of you? What, what happened? <laughs> uh, well, do you, let me, do you want me, I'll talk about the community piece first and then I'll tell you how yes. I got it. Yes. So I think community is something um, that's just so important to me because I spent so many years trying to figure out how to belong. And the only way I knew how to belong was through the theater kids. Um, so, you know, growing up in the 80s and the 70s, you know, musical theater draws a very diverse group of folks that are just looking for acceptance, accept me for who I am. You know, many of my friends at the time were part of the LGBTQ community, but weren't out. But, you know, this was this insular group where you could be who you wanted to be. And when I lost my community in Georgia and then found my community in Connecticut and then tried to replicate that again when I went to college, you know, it, it it's hard to find your people. And that's to me what community is, the people who know you and accept you. And so I think it's just ingrained in me to um, create a space or to find spaces um, where people can feel that sense of being wanted uh, and that they are enough. And then it, and then when you find something that connects you like improv uh, or theater uh, or, or whatever that is, whether it's your knitting community, whatever it is, you know, that love, that shared love also really helps strengthen the community in a way. Uh, so I don't, I don't think I realized actively that's what I was doing, but looking back now, like I can kind of understand the why behind why it's so important to me to have spaces for people. Um, and I think that became just really accelerated during the pandemic, uh, because our spaces became virtual and our community became even larger. 
Um, yeah, I know I could talk about that for forever. How did I get into improv? Well, I was turning 40. Um, my husband shortly before that had moved us to Minnesota. And as I told you, I grew up in the South. Right. That's a big, big difference, but it was a great opportunity for his work. And so I jokingly said, I will go with you, but every January you have to take me somewhere warm. Uh, so while that was sort of a joke, it became our tradition. And we would do a cruise every January because we had one kid and such great built-in services for your child to be entertained so that you can have some quality time with your partner. Uh, and so I was on a cruise ship uh, and I was turning 40 that year. So I was in just this headspace of who am I? What am I about? What's my purpose? I can't just be a mom and a wife. There needs to be more. And the first night on the cruise ship, we went to the show and it was the Second City Improv Touring Company. Wow. And wow. <laughs> I don't really remember the sh- the first show. I just remember this, this feeling of what is this? Where does it come from? How do you do this? Um, this feels like this is something that I need to do. And uh, I went to every show that week, the kids shows, the regular shows, the adult shows. I think my husband was so sick of it by the time at the end of it. <laughs> um, and I said to him, you know, hey, when I get home, if there's improv in Charlotte, which I just don't think there is, I think I'm going to give that a go. And he was like, all right, go ahead, do it. So I got home and I looked up on the internet and there was a place called Charlotte Comedy Theater. Uh, and they were starting a class like 10 days later from when I got home. And it happened to be a night that I was not working, which was just all those things sort of falling together. So it will be 14 years next week. And I went to the class and I got to the class and I've never felt so overwhelmed and in my entire life. So (laughs) you're taking an improv class for the first time. So we did a break halfway through. Uh, and I went to the bathroom like everyone else, but then I was like, I'm not going back to the class. So I stayed in the bathroom for like, I don't know, 15 plus, maybe 20 minutes, knowing that the class would have already started and I could just sneak away. Uh, and then I came out of the bathroom and like, it was like a L shape. So the ladies room was here and the men's room was here. So as I'm walking out the door, I walk like smack dab into one of the instructors, uh, <laughs> not the instructors, one of the senior cast members who was right. there. And he was like, oh my gosh, we were looking for you. And then I was like, oh, sorry, stomach issues. And then I walked back to class with him and I'm so happy I did because I would have just left. And if I could have escaped and probably not be where I am today. Oh, that's an incredible story. And uh, I understand that a lot of people get really freaked out. And, you know, what is this and what's going on? I, I myself, when I my first class, I became addicted, I became so enthralled, and just knew I had found my home somehow. Um, with a very supportive and wonderful teacher, but that's an incredible. Thank God they found you, Carla. You <laughs> yeah, they tracked me down. They tracked me down. You might still be a build a bear. Yeah, I might still anymore. be there. So, so, um, so let's talk about your improv journey then. So, um, 
You started taking, I'm taking it, you started taking more than one class or what, what happened next? It, uh, so the theater uh, just sort of had one track at the time. You There was a Tuesday class um, and then a Wednesday rehearsal. So once you did the Tuesday class, you just went to the Wednesday rehearsal. Um, and then some of the cast members would come on Tuesday nights to class as well, just because they wanted more improv in their life. Uh, and then there were performance opportunities on Friday and Saturday. Um, and I guess I started in February and, um, uh, and by uh, September, they'd asked me to join their cast, which means I could be in the Friday night shows, which were all short form. And then the Saturday night shows were long form with some short form. And that's where more of the senior cast uh, hey, sort of played Whoa, in. Nelly. Whoa, Nelly. You, you ran out of your first class. You came back. But when did you get that? I mean... I, the aha moment when you realized this is fantastic. This is me. You know, I don't, I don't know that I had that moment until I was on stage in front of an audience. Um, and I think for me, it was this sense of home more than anything else because I hadn't been on the stage in so long. Um, and there's just something about, an audience that oh yeah it I don't even know how to put it in words but it becomes this like the symbiotic relationship between yes. a performer and an audience member regardless if you're doing like a musical theater or a dramatic play or some improv comedy um but there's just something about that connection that I was never able to replicate anywhere else in my life uh I mean as a someone who worked at Build-A-Bear Workshop and American Girl Doll I mean, I was definitely acting through the most of right. my days and, right. and, and being a version of myself that's not who I normally am because they're, they're, they're experiential based retailers. And so my job was to create that experience for people. And so, um, but there's just something different. So I think for me, it definitely wasn't the first night because I don't remember, I think I was just in like this robotic mode the first time I performed but I think it was probably the second time that I performed but even after they asked me to be on the cast it took me another six weeks I think before I finally signed up for a show so uh, it took me a little bit of time to get the courage to do it and my first show I don't remember anything about it um but by that second show um I felt like this was something, you know, that I, I needed in my life and I did as much of it as I could. So, which meant like Tuesdays and Wednesdays and then a Friday night show. Um, and I did that for, I don't know, many years. I don't know how many. Um, and really didn't dip my toe into the long form for quite a while. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think at that particular theater, the Friday night shows um, always sold really well because an audience understands short form because it was like in the heyday of who whose line is it anyway. Um, and I was such a different player. And I said this recently and then I was like, oh, that sounds kind of horrible. But I said recently, like, I feel like I used to play like a man. And I was like, well, that sounds super stereotypical and gingerized. But in, in my defense, uh, the men at the theater um, played very fast. Uh, they played with like 
very physical, very pun-like, you know, pushing each other for those laughs, setting each other up. And so I was sort of improvising at the speed of light. Um, and I look oh, back now. That would and, make a good title of a book. Yeah, I look <laughs> back now and I think, God, you were terrible, terrible, just pandering to your scene partner and pandering to your audience and nothing authentic at all about what I was doing, except for probably the joy that you could see. Um, and then uh, a gentleman named Kale Evans uh, who is my current partner at Queen City Comedy. Uh, he lives about an hour, we live about an hour and a half away, even though technically we're in the same city. Uh, he, there is a local theater in Salisbury, North Carolina, and he was putting together an improv troupe and they needed some more women. And so he invited myself and two other women to come on up on a Sunday afternoon and so we drove up and he gave us the location and we opened the door. It is literally an abandoned warehouse without floors and walls. <laughs> There's like a sink and a bucket in the corner. And I'm like, where are we? What is happening right now? Uh, but it was the rehearsal for a group called Now Are the Foxes. Um, <laughs> and it's been about nine years, I think, since I, I did that. And I still perform with them. We have a wow. show on Friday night uh, here in Charlotte. And we also have a online version of that team that features folks from Canada and Australia and around the U.S. Um, that performs. And it was through there that I got introduced to long form. Um, and being a script writer at first, I was a bit resistant to long form and I don't really know why, but now I look back um, and I think about like the tools that I learned in college make me approach a scene in such a different way because when we do improv, um, we are writing a script. We are writing, a, we're writing that story. We're creating the character. We're doing, creating their subtext. Uh, you know, we're creating their plot and what happens next. So we're creating their backstory all just through those choices that we're making. Um, and so for me, uh, a couple years later, I went to my first festival and that's where I, I saw just different types of long form and I could see that story thread, even in a montage, uh, how this idea sparks that idea, which is what, what writing is about. Um, and I think that there's something um, that just felt like uh, a natural way for me to to use my my degree in the script writing as well as my love of performance um and so we probably do more long form now than we do short form but there's always short form uh around in a show and all of that so wow so um you study the various there's so many forms like you know traditionally the herald is taught and the armando and then the fernando and the yeah, there's so many of them. So um, then something else must have happened because of who, what you're doing today. So what happened? The pandemic happened. Uh, no, before the pandemic, um, I, gosh, it's been about six, seven years. I have to look at dates. My position at American Girl Doll uh, was discontinued, eliminated, however you want to put it, um, in March uh, about seven years ago. I think it was seven, six, no, six years ago. Sorry, math is not my friend. Um, and 
uh, they were so lovely and gave me an incredible package. And part of the package was a career counselor. And I spent four months every week talking to her on the phone and interviewing for jobs. And it was the most lovely human being I've ever met in my life, but the most miserable experience I've ever had in my life, because I clearly found that I was not, um, I had nothing I could do. I only knew theater. I only knew retail. And despite the people who work in those worlds know that your human resources, your marketing, your uh, security, your accounting, like you do it all. They just weren't marketable skills for a job. And I didn't want to go back into the retail world because at that time, um, it really felt like retail was on their way out. Like it just, everything was going online um, and the malls just weren't full. And it just wasn't something I wanted to do. Um, So while I was looking and trying to figure it out, uh, a good friend of mine named Elizabeth Byland, who's a professor now at Virginia Commonwealth University, professor of improv. (laughs) Um, She uh, worked at an acting studio here And so they were looking for some substitute teachers. So I started substitute teaching uh, for acting and improv at the studio. And I did that for about two months. And then uh, an opening came up and I started teaching acting classes. And then Elizabeth and I started creating a program um, for adults because there wasn't an adult improv program there. So I started teaching uh, the adult improv program, like a level one and two or three or four and building that curriculum. And I, it just, I just sort of decided at that point that I wasn't going to go back to a real job. I don't know. And so I just started like, for lack of a better word, hustling. That's what I started doing. So not only was I working for the theater, I started doing their social media marketing and then Charlotte Comedy Theater. I started doing their social media marketing um, and just doing this gig work to like squish together yeah, a salary yeah. that would keep our, our family alive. Um, and then we have a, a great place here called the Blumenthal Performing Arts Center, just like our big Broadway theater house. Mm-hmm. Um, they quickly became a partner of ours. And then I started doing some teaching for them and some social media and marketing. Look at there. So <laughs> I've been doing all of these things and all of my world sort of squished together. Um, and that all kind of collided in a festival that we put on called the Queen City Comedy Experience, where we just took all these theaters from uh, and, and stand up and sketch and sort of brought it all together, calling it an experience versus a festival, because we just wanted to create this sense of community. Um, And so we we did that for three or four years. And then the pandemic hit. Um, And when the pandemic hit, everything theater wise in Charlotte obviously shut down. And then you started seeing improv popping up online pretty quickly. Um, And one of the first first. Yeah. One of the first classes I saw uh, was from a gentleman named Neil Curran who is out of Dublin, Ireland. Yes, yes, fantastic. Uh And I've always been obsessed with Ireland. I've gone four times now. Um, So I jumped on and did an online class with him. And I had to start teaching online as well. My kids, because I teach children, uh, youth and adult uh, and teen improv. And so within a couple of weeks, we were online on Zoom, which I'd never heard of. 
So we started teaching and I was like, this is so viable, but I need more tools. I I need more tools. And so I started taking, so I took with Neil and he was just absolutely fantastic. Um, And then I took something from the PAC theater with Miles Stroth. um, And I just sort of started like immersing myself in watching all of Jay Suko's 10 minute videos. Yep. yep. Um, And then he called and was like, Hey, do a 10 minute video. And I was like, who, how do you even know who I am? Um, (laughs) And that was like May. So like when, by then we thought like the pandemic is going to be over, right? We're going to, the world's going to open back up. And then June rolls around and, and the world doesn't open back up. Um, And I'm missing my, my, my community, my, my improv friends. And so Kale and I were like, none of our theaters in, here in Charlotte did anything really online throughout the whole pandemic. So we weren't really a school before. We were just like a community. We called ourselves a collective, right? Just bringing folks together. But we're like, let's do some online, uh, like drop-in classes for folks in Charlotte to pop into. And we sort of scheduled it out. And I also had like some kids classes that we were going to do. And he taught the very first class and he calls me up afterwards. And he was like, there's only two people in the class that we knew. And I was like, oh, where were all the other people from? He's like, you won't believe it. Like Israel and India and the Philippines and Europe. And he's like, I was like, that's so cool. That just how that, I don't even know how they heard about us. I was like, it's gotta be a fluke. And then my class is like the next week. Same thing, beautiful wow. international cast of folks showed up. Uh, and then that next day I taught a kid's class and the kid's class was the exact same way. Kids from like wow. all over the world. And I was like, what is happening? This is like just bizarre. So we were like, you know, we should we should get a group of people together and create like an improv team where folks can like rehearse each week and like get to know each other and maybe do some performances um, online. So in July, we, 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 well, we started posting, but in July we held auditions for a global team that we were going to do. And we had uh, over 150 people show up to the auditions, which was just mind boggling. Luckily, we knew in advance because they had to register. So we had to replan and and come up with some ways. Um, And out of that, instead of doing one improv team, we ended up with three international teams. Um, And that's sort of how it all started. And then I was like, well, if these people will come to us, who else will come to us? And so then I started reaching out to all of the improv teachers that I stalk. That's what I'm going to say in life. (laughs) Uh, We started off with like Paul Valancourt and he taught our very first workshop online. Um, And uh, it's very funny because myself and Elizabeth and one of our other coaches, Jen Bianchi, uh, Kale was like, you all were so ridiculous in that workshop. It was like you were looking (laughs) at the last piece of cheese. Uh, <laughs> during the class the whole time because we were starstruck right These right, are right. People, yeah that we never had access to uh and then I was just like I made a list and I have been working through that list for the last uh three years I guess we're almost up to three years uh, and just bringing in these instructors that I would never have access to, or if I did financially, it would cost me thousands and millions of dollars. Um, and um, even when the world opened back up, we've committed at Queen City Comedy and myself through Dingle Drama to keep offering online options for people because of access, because of 
you know, people not wanting to go out and drive at night or uh, just the, being in the comfort of your own home is a safety issue for a lot of people and an access issue. Um, so we'll keep offering until people stop showing up. That's what we we say. Well, I do not see that in your foreseeable future. And I, my crystal ball is a little hazy right <laughs> now, but I think we're going to keep going because I am so committed to online and so grateful for you because some of the instructors you've had are people who I later did podcasts with. So you really yeah. turned me on to some just great a feeder people. system for Margo. It's just a feeder system. It's a feeder for system for me. That's right. <laughs> and um, I was thinking about um, some of the uh, shows that you've put on i was in one recently where we were all animal avatars and although my avatar wasn't working too well yeah but, technology um, <laughs> right but you're so creative and innovative i just love it and that's all that background you had in tech and all that just amazing so um you have now have you ever made the journey to chicago and studied up there at all that's the pilgrimage a lot of people make I have not, but I am my one of the folks that I played with here for a very long time. Him and I were um, uh, in August of 2020 going to do the intensive, uh, one of the intensives of in Chicago. And I don't remember which one it was. Um, and we were like, uh, he was like, I don't have the money till March 1st. No, April 1st. So we can't sign up till April 1st. Um, and so we, we had it all planned out. Like we had picked out the hotel. We kind of knew what flights we were going to do, but we hadn't booked anything. And then the pandemic came like two weeks before we were going to book. So it was something that uh, I was planning on doing um, at, right before the pandemic. And it's funny now that the world is open, I, I don't want to go to Chicago and I don't. I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, obviously, the Chicago improv scene is as uh, very different now than it was pre-pandemic. Yes, yes. Uh, I also think that through the pandemic and the world opened up, uh, we learned that like great improv doesn't just happen in New York, Chicago, and LA. It happens yes. all over the globe. Yes, yes. So for me, I I want to learn more by going to places. Uh, that like Bangalore, India, or Manila, yes. Philippines, um, or Oslo, Norway, uh, and learn from those people, uh, who many of them have already been to Chicago and right, have right. that exposure. Uh, but I just feel like there's so much more, uh, you know, or a camp utopia where there's yes, yes, of people, yes. all the festivals. That's what I want to do. All the festivals, all the camps. Um, so I think there's more learning for me there uh, than there would be going to Chicago. I will get to Chicago at one point. A couple of our interns that helped us out during the pandemic are now performing at IO and they have their own show each month uh, and they will be rich and famous and they'll be like, who are you when I come to them? Um, but yeah, I do. I definitely want to go at some point. But but for me, I don't even know if I would take a class as much as I would just go and watch the shows uh, yeah, and yeah. see those offerings. Um, I took some classes from Second City online. Uh, I took a ton of classes from the Groundlings online. Uh, and so I feel like it's just not not a, I don't need to do. Uh, Absolutely. That. 
I know. I totally get it. I, I totally get it. So when you were in Ireland, this last trip to Ireland, did you uh, teach or perform there? I thought maybe you did. Yeah. So I was um, at the Improv Fest Ireland this November, uh, and I was fortunate enough to teach two sold out workshops, which I was like, someone just buy a ticket to my workshop because uh, there were great instructors like Chris Mead and Stacy Smith and Mark Sutton that were there. Yeah. And I'm like, nobody knows who I am. Um, so, oh yes, oh, yes they do. <laughs> <laughs> so I was so excited. It was my, it's my first international festival opportunity, uh, and Ireland is literally like my favorite place in the world. So I went in early and just hung out and did all the cool things in Dublin that I love. Mm -hmm. um, and then the festival started on Wednesday, and it was. Uh, I, I wrote a blog about it, but I, I can't even do it justice because the venue, first of all, is incredible. It is an old, beautiful Georgian mansion that's got many light levels. And there's two theaters on the one theater on the very lowest. And then you go up a level. There's the bigger theater. And then you go up and there's a pub because it's Ireland. And of course, there's a pub and then there's classrooms. So it's like all encompassed in this gorgeous, gorgeous facility. Uh, and then I, so we all sort of started the evenings at the pub and I walk into the room and the energy and the excitement, because I think for so many people, this was their first time back to a festival after the yes, pandemic. Yes. And, um, I was so fortunate. There was five of the folks that play in our Queen City comedy teams that I got to connect with and meet. And then through the pandemic, I was part of the community that Katie Shute and Chris Mead, uh, created called the International Improv Station. It changed its name to that. And I don't remember. And so like, I walked in the room and I was like, so nervous and I'm such an introvert. And there were so many faces that I recognized. It was like, 40, 50, 60 wow. faces every time I turned around. And so just to connect with these people who I had done classes with, I had done jams with, I had played in shows and on teams with, uh, it felt like these were not strangers, that these were like the people who have been performing with for years and years. And so it was just such an amazing experience and what a well done festival. So kudos to Neil and Quentin. Like on Wednesday night, the shows were sold out and they were adding chairs uh, on a Wednesday night. And in the U.S., it doesn't happen very often at a festival. Um, and so just incredible performances, just unique improv that I feel like we you see so much more of in Europe. Uh, you much more narrative structure, uh, which we don't see as much of here in the U.S. So it was really, really there's a beautiful show that uh, Rhiannon Jenkins does, Death Dying. I can't remember the title, but it starts literally with someone getting a terminal diagnosis. Um, and it ends with them calling time of death where you wait in silence for two minutes uh, until they pronounce the person dead. So this gorgeous, dramatic uh, piece um, that just was mind blowing. Uh, so yeah, so I did, I taught. And I, I taught in there at some point, and then I performed in the teacher show and did a, mon a monologue and an Armando uh, for a group that my buddy John Nguyen was in, uh, who's another incredible improviser out of England, who I think should have been a cheerleader in a former life because all he does <laughs> uplift people. Um, and then after Ireland, since I was, you know, it's not a cheap ticket flying to, across the pond there, I went over to England. 
uh, and Wales for like another week. And so I went into London and Hoopla Improv, which is an incredible, incredible theater who I took some classes with, but they don't know me. I just sent an email and was like, hey, I'm going to be there. And I just want a space where all the folks I know in, in London can get together and play. And so they gave me their theater on a Tuesday night um, and like 20 people came and we had food and drink at the pub below. And then we did a jam for like an hour. And so that was amazing. Um, and then I traveled up north and I went to Glossop, England, where yes. uh, Seki and Jess are. Yes. And I did a workshop with them. And then I was in Chester, where I did a workshop with the Improv Boost and my mentor, uh, David Escobedo. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Seki, my friend Seki took me to Wales and she teaches um, Ukrainian folks that are displaced. And she teaches uh, some youth at a community center. So I was able to go to her community center classes. And so it was just amazing. And we talked about community earlier. Uh, Somebody said, gosh, you're so brave to travel alone. Because I was gone for like 18 days. And I was like, after the first three days in Dublin, I never felt like I was alone. Like we texted each other when we got back to hotels Um, There was a train strike in England and uh, some of the folks coming to my workshop drove like 10 hours round trip. Um, uh, Some of the folks that I couldn't, my train from Glossop back to Chester um, because of the train strike was canceled. So someone drove me two hours back uh, to my hotel and I wasn't feeling well. And David Escobedo showed up with like cold medicine. Like it, it it was a community where Folks, uh, people brought me into their home and fed me and took me to Sunday roast. And so it was, um, it was all about community for me, much more than about performing and teaching and festivals and just connecting with those people that we have this shared love, which is improv. I feel excited listening to you. It's wonderful. I'm so glad you had that great experience. But I want to talk a little bit, ask you some questions about Dingle Drama. You also write a blog. So we have a little bit of time, well, some time now to talk about Dingle Drama. And I am signing up, I've signed up for a monologue class with you coming up next month. Um, And uh, so let's talk about Dingle Drama and, and your writing a little bit, okay? Sure. So um, I love everything that I do at Queen City Comedy, uh, but about halfway through the pandemic, I guess so, my husband um, was looking at other work opportunities. And um, I was like, well, what happens if we leave here? What am I going to do? And so I started sort of like, I need to sort of set up my own opportunities, which I think was a big learning for me during the pandemic. Um it felt like pre-pandemic, so many performers were beholden to theater spaces or instructors for the opportunity to be a part of whatever they were doing. Uh, and through the pandemic, I think my biggest lesson other than community was you don't need them, do it yourself. So uh, I don't know, I am not a computer person, but I sat down and it took me like five, six months to build a website because I was like, don't feel like I can start without a website. Um, and so that's sort of where I started. And I just really started with like a drop in class, some drop in classes. And I think for me, um, 
once I learned online that improv is really about the connecting, the listening and the responding. It's not necessarily about comedy. And that was something I learned really through the pandemic. Uh, I was like, that's something I want to explore more because what that did, it was sort of tie in my acting background and those acting classes and techniques and skills that were hammered down my throat for years and years. And then the cool things about improv and thinking about how do those come together Uh, And it's that intersection that really, really has interested me. And I think maybe what makes me a little different as an improv teacher. Um, And so that's sort of how Dingle Drama came to be. So I started doing some drop-in classes. It'll be two years, I think, uh, May. Uh, And and again, you know, it's that if you build it, they will come. It sort of happened. Um, And there were many, uh, and for those of you trying this on your own, uh, there were many times that people didn't come. And like, that's okay as well. Uh, You have to sort of learn to roll with it as you're building something. Uh, But during the pandemic, one of the classes that I I started teaching was an improv for actors or an acting for improv class. And then I sort of drilled that down to this monologue class that I've been teaching um, called scripted and unscripted monologues, where we spend half the class focusing on um, the monologues that you can use through improv and like, how do you set your scene partner up to monologue or an aside or, or whatever that might be. And then the other piece is scripted work, which is for a lot of improvisers, terrifying, uh, where I ask them to memorize the monologue. And then they come into class and they deliver that monologue. And then I like to say we begin to improvise around it. So we begin to create that world um, that this character has come out of so that they become these memories that live in your brain, not something you just wrote on a piece of paper, which is how traditional actors are. You fill out this character worksheet. My character was born here. Right, your backstory. (laughs) Yeah, so we got to sort of live it and, and, and make that actor experience it so that when they have to replicate this monologue, it's not this memorized work. It's this lived event that they can continue to sort of replicate and bring out. Um, so I think that that's what a lot has drawn a lot of people to over to Dingle Drama is the monologue class um, because it's something so very different and very, very challenging. And I've had folks from like India and uh, Germany. I think my one of my German students was probably my favorite because he uh, he brought Shakespeare in and I was like, oh, and I grew up doing Shakespeare and I was like, oh, how do we make Shakespeare better? I don't know, but he's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, actor and improviser. And so uh, that's sort of just where that came from. And then uh, it's just something I've kind of continued to do. I definitely am one of those instructors that really listen to my students, um, maybe too much because we'll do something and they'll be like, you should do a whole class on that. And then like two weeks later, I've got a whole <laughs> class ready for that. Uh, because I was like, what do people want? I mean, that's sort of the magical question when you think about offering. So when someone says this would be a great additional class, um, that's sort of what we did. Like I just finished up this coaching class, notes and nudging. Um, and they're like, you need to do more of these. So I scheduled like a once a month one where people can just drop in and just get some notes on their scenes. Um, Someone's like, walk-ins are hard. So I scheduled one about a walk-in. Um, <laughs> but I think now it's finding like what, it's finding the right schedule because the world is still, is doing, yes. a lot of the world's juggling in person and online. And so uh, I did like some intensive where it was like two weekends in a row. And 
Um, now I'm just sort of doing a lot more of just one-time offerings just because it's easier for people, I think, to commit to those one-time things. And I still teach at Queen City Comedy. I do one workshop there a month um, because that's my home. Those are the people. Uh, well, I have to testify because I've had the luxury of studying with you and you're one of my favorite teachers because first of all, you're so kind, non-judgmental and accepting. And the way you teach, it, it's so nurturing. That's one of the things I love about you, totally nurturing and supportive. So I, cause sometimes I'll, even after all these years, I go, oh, uh, whatever. And, but you seem to have a way of making me see it in a much brighter light, whatever I've done, you know, that <laughs> oh, there's no mistakes in improv. Um, and it's just so exciting to be around you, Carla. And I did want to mention about the monologues. You know, when I started, I was doing improv and acting, but I didn't want to memorize all those scripts. Although I did do the, um, is, I think it's the 59 steps or something like that. It's a takeoff on the Hitchcock thing. And, oh, okay. I, and it's only two characters. Um, and I memorized the whole thing and then never did the performance. <laughs> that was my oh and then I did arsenic and old lace but enough about me I did arsenic and old lace too back in high school that's so great I was one of the old ladies <laughs> me too me too I don't remember which one I don't remember I was quite no. inebriated at the time probably uh you mentioned cast parties and I uh in high school when I was in a few plays we had some rip roaring cast parties but that's in the past <laughs> that is in the past for both of us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a new new life today. So you're an, a wonderful writer. And do you write every day? I mean, what what's your schedule like with your writing? I am the most undisciplined human, <laughs> ever, which is why I don't have a, a career in writing. Um, I think about writing every day, and I barely ever write. Uh, I've been working on my blog for two years and I have nine entries. Um, uh, so it's like, it, it's not, it's not, it's not a discipline for me. And I always, um, oh, how do I say this? I never feel like it's something people want to read. I feel like it's self-indulgent. Um, I feel like uh, I bury it in the back page of my website so when people come across it and I didn't until probably like the last four months even like share that I was writing a blog uh so yeah I mean it's just the things that I feel like I have something to say like I wrote a blog about my first time back on stage after the pandemic and just how awful it felt and icky and yucky and like all the good things I had learned I just threw them in the trash and just did horrible like fart and poop jokes and, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I guess for me it's those things that like maybe somebody else will read this absolutely. and be like my absolutely. first show was crap too so absolutely um, you know one of the books that influenced me in my career was called the imperfect therapist because I thought I was the only therapist making mistakes and then I decided I found out there are tons of people making mistakes out there in therapy world um so uh and again you're just a fabulous teacher and I'm so looking forward to our monologue class and you have given me and the world the opportunity to study with some incredible people and I'm so glad you're in my life, Carla. Oh, thank I you. I can't say that enough. And for any listeners that haven't, I'm going to 
any listeners that have never studied with Carla, I'm encouraging you to take the time and we're going to be posting all of your sites and everything with the podcast so they have an opportunity to study with one of the mover and shakers in improv today. <laughs> and if you don't want to study, I'm doing this thing called Come Play With Me. It's called Scene Time. You can just come do a scene with me uh, and we can meet and connect that way. And there's no cost for that other than the time that you spend. And that's a beautiful gift you're giving. And you you figured out how to use that calendry thing where people <laughs> can sign up for a spot. I've tried to use that. I have I have miserable at it. So you've explored so many different aspects of theater and drama and improv. And this is a question I like to ask people who perform and teach. If you had the choice, which one would you rather do, perform or teach? Oh, I would teach in a heartbeat. Um, I get so much back from my students. Um, and again, I teach ages nine all the way up to, I don't know, 109. Uh, I get, I learn so much more and get so much more back from them than I do an audience. And I never thought I would say that um, because we talked earlier about just how much being in front of an audience means to me. Uh, but I would give that up. Uh, to Absolutely. watch people grow and to watch people uh, gain confidence and skills and see them put those into play, not just in the classroom, not just on the stage, but in life, because there's so much interpersonal skills that we learn through improv that when we put into play in our real life just makes us a better person. So, um, yeah, I would I would teach and not perform again, which is my mother's probably like, what? Uh, but that's what I would do. I agree with you. 110%. There's so much joy in teaching. And what do you think makes a good improv teacher? Uh, I think someone who continues to educate themselves. I think that's the number one answer I'm going to give. This art form has evolved so much and it's still such a new art form. If you look and compare it to all the other art forms out there in the world. Um, and so it's constantly growing. It's constantly evolving. It's not the same thing we started with. Uh, you know, I even look back at what I was teaching when I started teaching and what I'm teaching now, and it's just completely different thing. Just even the concept of yes and and how much that's evolved. Uh, so I think you have to keep learning. Um, and then I think the other thing I think that makes a good teacher is providing opportunities for others. Uh, you know, we should be teaching folks and then giving them the opportunity to be the next teachers. Uh, I think that that's really important um, because someone gave me that opportunity. You know, the first person that let me teach online outside of my little world was Mickey Manting from Vintage Improv. Yes. Um, and so someone gave me that opportunity, that, that platform to be seen in a different way and in a different light. Uh, and so I think for me, it's just that education and that knowing that they will out they should outgrow you and become better teachers yes yes and take the ego out of it and just watch it and, and enjoy as they begin to enjoy it as much as you do well thank you for all the gifts you've given to improvisers all over 
And what a delight to spend this morning with you, Carla. I just adore you. And I have a nephew that lives in Charlotte. So I don't know if he has an extra bedroom, but that could be a little trip. Well, we have uh, we have our festival, the Queen City Comedy Experience in September, the second week of September. I think it's like the 6th through the 10th. You should come then, Margo. It'll be all sorts of fun stuff happening. That sounds great. Well, again, thank you so much. And I'll see you soon. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Thanks. Carla. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.